You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. It is so good to be back. I was in Nashville last week with one of our mission partners. They have a great mission team of high school students and their parents. They have families coming to do mission with us this summer. So that's going to be an exciting time. I really missed you guys. And now I'm looking around the room. I see some faces of, of people I haven't had a chance to meet yet. I'm Pastor Brian. That was Pastor Josiah. He's headed back with the kiddos. He's our family pastor here. I'm excited to get back into Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. So if you have a Bible or an electronic device and you want to make your way there, great. If you want to use one of those Bibles under the, the seat or in front of you somewhere, that's going to be on page 1000 in those pew Bibles. Let's go ahead and take a look at God's Word as we continue in our series through Romans. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we look to what you have in your word for us, encouragement, correction maybe, Lord, training, or whatever it is that you would speak to us, it's my humble request that you speak to us in terms we can understand, that you would open our ears, that you would help us to see And God, this morning, we would encounter you in your word and be changed by it. So thank you for the opportunity now to hear from you. Lord, please help us to understand exactly what it is that you have for us. Help me to preach this in a way that honors you and helps us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so while I was out, I watched the service on the live stream, which I'm thankful for that. And we saw that Pastor Josiah preached Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And in there, verse 1 says, Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, We rejoice in that peace. And then verse 3 says, Not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. When I examine my own heart, as I think about what Pastor Josiah preached, as I think about the text, and I, and I look deep, I do some, some self-reflection, I don't think that I am resting much in this hope, this biblical hope. I don't find myself comforted in the peace that the Bible says Christians should have. Maybe, maybe you saw the story of Andrew Thorburn last week. 
Maybe more so if you're a sports fan, I'm not, but for the reasons of this story, it caught my attention. On Monday, Andrew Thorburn was appointed the CEO of the Essendon Football Club in Australia, and that's not this kind of football. That's this kind of football. It's a big deal. It's a big team. It was really exciting, and yet immediately the social media controversy erupted. It exploded all over the internet, all over the place, and by Tuesday, Thorburn was forced to resign. The controversy was over a 2013 sermon preached by Thorburn's pastor. The topic of that sermon was homosexuality, and the social media mob also found some comments from the church about abortion. See, the church claims that the Bible says homosexuality and abortion are sins, and we as a church would agree that the Bible does indeed say that. Australia, on the other hand, finds that unforgivably offensive. Thorburn serves as the chairman of their lay leadership team, but he didn't even take a strong stance with the church. Instead, trying to probably to keep his job in some way, he said that the 2013 sermon in question was before he was in leadership. And then he even said, just for good measure, he doesn't always agree with what is preached at his church. That didn't matter. That didn't change a thing. The cancel culture mob was out for blood. Thorburn is now unemployed because of his church membership. Australia came after him because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this didn't happen in Afghanistan under the the thumb of Islamic extremists. This wasn't done at the hand of North Korean anti-government leadership. This was public outcry in Australia. And two weeks ago, I heard stories of a, of a city zoning problem in a major city in Canada that is zoning churches out of the city and is working hard to keep them out and push them out. This is Canada and Australia. I don't think I'm ready for this in our community. I'm not, but it's probably coming. It's possible, maybe likely, that your beliefs, maybe even your church membership at this church, will bring this kind of thing to your doorstep. Are you ready? I'm not standing up here to say the sky is falling, but I am saying this is what I saw in the news in the last two weeks. We've had years and years of comfort and ease, and I think that causes us to sort of skim over and miss verses like Luke 21, 12. That verse says, before all these things, okay, what things? Uh, Jesus is talking about earthquakes and famines and plagues that are going to come at the very end of the world. He says, before all these things... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Or how about John 15, 19? Jesus said this to his disciples. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. This life is already challenging enough, isn't it? I mean, disease and economic challenges and wars and kids just trying to get off to school early in the morning. There's enough challenges here 
to make us feel burdened and bogged down and tired. And now we need to start thinking about adding persecution. So considering all these difficulties in this life, what do we do? Where do we find the peace and the hope that we heard about in Romans chapter 5? 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 say, First of all, then, I urge petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for all kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That sounds nice. Certainly we should do what this scripture says. We should pray for our government leaders, even those who oppose God's will. The scripture says we should do it. We should be obedient. We should do that. But there are some Christians who've taken even this scripture as a charge for a plan in which they say we should work to get Christians in every political office. We need to get a a Christian president elected, and we need to get Christian senators and representatives and governors all the way down to the local school board slots. That's going to do it. Now, that would be nice for sure. I think that would be fantastic if we had godly men and women in these positions of leadership. I think we should pray for that, and I think we should pray for it often. And I also think we should vote for godly men and women who reflect God's character and God's will. Any opportunity we have, we can't always do that, but I think we should as much as possible. But I don't see how getting the right people in public office is God's plan for Romans 5, peace and hope. Here's why. Three reasons. Up until about 200 years ago, voting wasn't even an option for Christians. People in the world didn't vote for their leaders. That's a new concept for the most part. And it's still not an option in North Korea. And many, many, many other places around the world. I I don't know of any circumstance where Peter ever could have saw an election where he could have voted against Nero. Like this isn't a reality within normal Christianity. Number two, how is this plan going to work where there's a world who hates Christianity, who hates Jesus, and is anti-Christian? That's the majority of the world. How in the world is an election going to bring solutions in that concept when a majority tends to rule in elections. This is the attitude in almost every place in the world. Number three, probably the biggest reason, it was God who put every leader on the planet, good or bad, into power. Romans 13.1 says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, Since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that that exist are instituted by God. Elections and politics cannot possibly be the plan for us to have Romans 5, peace and hope. We should pray and we should hope that there might be some change for good in this world there. But that can't be the master plan for us to have peace and hope. When I look into the challenges of the world, when I, when I just look out there, I start praying like the Apostle John at the end of Revelation. Right? Come, Lord Jesus, come! Do you ever pray like that? What's the holdup? When are you coming? Lord, please! 
Are you ready for Jesus to come back? I know I am. I take seriously Jesus' encouragement in John 14, 1 through 3. He says this, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. I mean, this is an encouraging word. This is very encouraging. But you know what? I still struggle with it. I see the world around me. I read the news. I hear stories about Australia and Canada and persecution all over the world, and I get a little anxious. Gas prices going up, barrel prices and, and economy issues and, and all the things. I get anxious. The troubling world troubles me. Jesus said, I'm coming back, so don't be troubled. That should be enough, right? That should, he's coming back. Don't be troubled. That should be enough. Just knowing this should bring me peace and hope, right? Yet I still struggle. I, I still have worry and I still have anxiety. I'm still nervous about that. I don't look at the world and go, oh, okay, that's great. Jesus is coming back. We're good. I just don't. My flesh just roars and I feel that anxiety. The temptation that kicks up when things start to get a little extra hard is to try to find out about when he's coming back because I'm impatient. Lord, when? we got to figure this out. How he's coming back so I can be looking for all the stuff. I want to know all the details. The temptation is to just dig in because I think we think there's going to be a sense of comfort if we can know everything about his return. We think all those details... And all that information will give us the hope and the peace of Romans 5 so that we don't have to be worried. But I've seen a lot of people that know a lot more than me about end times who are still very troubled, still very anxious, still very worried. They don't look like they're just watching the world come with calm and peace. They're terrified. When I was a kid, one of my dad's co-workers... I still remember his name, but I won't share it here. He was a Christian, probably one of the only Christians that worked with my dad. We, barbecues and things, you get to know people. He was very concerned about the problems in the world. Communism, <clears throat> nuclear war, AIDS, and all the other things that were terrifying us in 1988. He was also extremely serious about end times. He talked to me even as a kid about it. Talked to my dad about it. He was so serious, in fact. In September of 1988, he went to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem to sit and wait for Jesus' return. He told everybody goodbye. He shared the gospel with them and said, you need to know Jesus. Jesus is coming back. Gave away his stuff. Flew to Jerusalem. He was certain that Jesus was coming back, and he was going. He had put so much hope in Jesus' return that he refused to believe Matthew 28, 36. Because that was everything. He's coming back. I don't care. I don't want to hear it. He refused to believe that Jesus said, Now, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Neither the angels of heaven 
nor the Son, except for the Father alone. Now, obviously, he had to return to his job. He was deflated for years and years. My dad often commented, sadly, sometimes I think he joked, about how hopeless this man was and how empty he was after that and how he had no faith. He'd put all of his hope in the details that didn't pan out like he thought. Studying the end times is a good thing. It is. We should study the Bible. We should know the Bible. In fact, Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. Studying the end times is good. But just knowing lots and lots and lots of stuff and having speculations about how and when and what and starting to look for all the pieces, that isn't going to give us the peace and the hope that we read about in Romans 5. It's helpful, but it's not the final answer. If we go back to Jesus' words in John 14, the one, you know, don't be troubled. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm coming back for you. If we go back there, we see that right after he said that, Thomas chimed in. Thomas chimes in. He says, Jesus, uh, I don't know how to get where you're going. How are we going to get to where you are? How are we going to get to this place you're preparing for us? We don't know the way. Now, the irony of that is Jesus just said in verse 4, you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas says, no, we don't. Nope. No idea. Which it really even shouldn't matter if we don't know the way because Jesus also said, I will come and take you myself. So Thomas is there like, we don't know how to get there. We don't know what's going on. What do we do? Jesus graciously answers Thomas. He's like, okay, you're kind of panicked, Thomas. You're worried, you're anxious. So he answered Thomas's question and he said, I am the way. That's why you know. You know me, you know the way, you can trust me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. I think a lot of us are still troubled, myself included, because we're still asking Thomas's question. I don't know the way. I'm worried about what I see out there. And I, I want out of here. I don't want this, and I, and I don't know the way to get away from all this. But because we're so focused on Thomas's question, we're missing Jesus' answer. Jesus is the way. So let me ask, what helped Andrew Thorburn find peace and hope in God this week now that he lost his job because of his faith? How does he rested peace how does he rest in hope? How does he find comfort in it? Now, it'd be easy for him to just toss his hands up in the air and say, that's it. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of the world. I don't know the way. I'm just going to camp out and just wait for Jesus to come and get me. I just want out of here. I'm gone. That's my only hope and peace. I'm just hoping for that. And otherwise, I'm going to sit here miserable, worried, freaked out, and tremendous anxiety. I'm out of here. Now, we might do the exact same thing if we're in Andrew Thorburn's shoes. So let's not be hard on that guy. Some of us might be doing that right now, even if you didn't lose your job because of your faith. Some of us might be feeling exactly the same way, and we'd be in good company, I think. The Apostle Paul wrestled with this question. 
He struggled with this. He's like, man, I, just, I want out of here. Which, for good reason. That guy was beat multiple times, shipwrecked multiple times, arrested, put in chains, bit by a snake, hauled in front of Caesar, hauled in front of the kings, lowered out of a wall in a basket because people were trying to kill him. This dude did not have an easy ministry. So if anybody's like, Lord, can we be done? Can you come and get me and we get out of here? Paul is a pretty reasonable candidate for such a thing. So he's wrestling with this. But listen to his conclusion in Philippians 1, verses 21 through 26. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ. You can just hear his struggle in this. You can feel it because you probably feel it. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ may abound. What kept Paul going in this crazy world? Where did Paul find his peace and find his hope to keep going through all this? Now, it's easy to say that Paul's motivation was for those who needed to hear the gospel. It's easy. If, he, if I go now, there will be people who will not be in eternity. They will not have had the opportunity to hear the preached word. And the same is true for us. If we're just get out of here, what about all the people who don't know Jesus and don't get that opportunity? That's easy to see his motivation. It's a wonderful reason to say, man, I, I want to stay in this difficulty like a firefighter running into a burning building to proclaim the gospel to my kids who don't know Jesus, to my family members who don't know Jesus, to all those who will suffer, who all those who are struggling because they don't know Jesus. That is a very reasonable and fair motivation that Paul has here. He wanted everyone to hear the gospel. But where still did Paul find his peace and his hope. The gospel's wonderful motivation, but where did he rest in peace? And where did he rest in hope? Where did he find that? This brings us all the way back now to what we read at the very beginning. Some of you are sitting there wondering, when are we going to get to Romans 5, 6 through 11? We're there. I just needed to set the stage so we understand why he's writing what he's writing. It's been a little while, so let's read it again. If you would look at Romans... Chapter 5, starting in verse 6, it says, For while we were still helpless, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, Will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. You see, this is actually tied to what Pastor Josiah preached last week. These go together. What we see here is really, really good news. It's what we call the gospel. You notice it says, we were helpless and ungodly. Helpless and ungodly, that's verse 6. And sinners, those who've committed violations of the law, that's verse 8. That's our status when Christ died for us. Helpless, ungodly sinners, and Christ died for us. It says he did that two times. It says it in verse 6, and it says it in verse 8. In those words, Christ died for us. It also says we were declared righteous by his blood, verse 9. And we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, verse 10. I mean, this is just a gospel-rich paragraph. This is the gospel. Jesus died in your place and in my place for the sins that we committed to take on the death and the punishment that we deserved. When we were his enemies, he did this for us. When we were helpless, he did this for us. And he died. He was crushed under the weight of the wrath of God for those sins that we deserved. He was laid in a tomb, and on the third day, he rose from the grave so that we'd be justified. He spent a little time with the disciples, preparing them to go and share the gospel throughout the world, and then he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father where he is praying for you right now. And the Bible says that if you believe this and you let Jesus be the Lord of your life, calling all the shots, living your life by what he instructs, it says you will be saved. That's the gospel. That's the good news. If there are any of you in here that are saying, I, I want to talk more about that, come talk with us. Talk with the person sitting next to you. We would love to help you sort that out. That's the gospel. But most of you know this gospel. Most of you have trusted in this gospel. You've placed your hope and your, your faith in this Jesus Christ and you've called him the Lord of your life. And you look now to the cross, a past event. You believe in that. You trust in that. You know that he rose from the grave and that's where we place our hope for our justification. And then we also look forward to Jesus' return. We look to the past. We see that. We look to the future but I want you to notice something in Paul's words. Look back at Romans 5, 9. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Do you see the past tense words? Have been declared. Do you see the future tense words? Will be saved. Look at Romans 5, 10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? See the past tense words. We were enemies, were reconciled, having been reconciled. See the future tense words again. Will be saved. Now notice the question in both verses. It's no coincidence. There's a parallelism here. Look at the question. How much 
more. How much more? If this in the past, how much more will we be saved? If Christ dying for our sins, when we were still sinners, when we were ungodly, when we were helpless is amazing, then how much more amazing is it that he's not leaving us to sort out what comes next? He didn't do that and then say, good luck. He saved us. He's saving us. And he will save us at the final judgment. It's an all-encompassing action that didn't just start then and it's done. And it's not something we only look to in the future. It's then, it's now, and it's in the future. Salvation is not something we only look to the past to. It's not something we only kind of loosely hope in the future for. It's every single millisecond since the moment you trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation. It's a process that's not ending. Jesus is not absent. Jesus is still doing something right now in your salvation. He's still carrying you, and he's carrying me all the way to the finish line, and he's going to see that no matter what, if you're his, you will get there, even through the difficulties of this life. He saved us, he's saving us, and he will save us. See, we understand that we were saved. We get the past tense. We get it. We read about it. I preach it. We tell stories about it. We share our stories about when we were saved, and we go back to that key moment. We get that. And we cherish it, and we sing about it, which is great. We love talking about that one-time moment of salvation from death to life when we became Christians. Then we celebrate that by, by being baptized and showing what happened internally in our lives in that moment. And everyone goes, that's fantastic. But we end up troubled and worried and in tremendous anxiety because we fail to realize that Jesus is carrying us right now. He's still saving you right now. He's saving us. Even if you're in one of life's big storms, or even if you look out to the world and you see stormy waters, maybe the, the storm you see in Canada and, and Australia, you go, that's coming here. Maybe you see that storm coming. You need to remember something. Jesus is in the boat with you. You remember the account in Matthew 8, uh, 23 through 27? Huge storm. Jesus is like, let's go to the other side of the, the lake. I'm like, okay, he knew. I mean, he had to have had the weather forecast because he's God. He gets out on the water, a huge storm. People who were accustomed, some of them, accustomed to being out on the water in boats, said, we are dying the storm is going to kill us. This is going to capsize us. It's more than we can handle. Where was Jesus? He was snoozing. He was asleep. Why? Well, because first, he was tired. That's why we sleep when we're humans, and that showed his humanity. But second, it was because he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt the waves which he created obeyed his commands. He had no concerns. Now, neither should the disciples who were with him. 
because Jesus has power over the storm. And Jesus is with the disciples in the boat. Jesus has power over the storms you're seeing in your life right now. The wind and the waves obey him. The demons obey him. You know where he was going? To cast out all those demons? Free another man from a serious storm? Then he came back. Even those who've died are raised again to life at his command. You don't think he can't handle your problems? You don't think he's going to carry you all the way to the finish line? And it might not look like you expect, but he's got this. He's got it. He didn't save you. He didn't go to the cross to die for your sins to then let you drown in the storm of the world. He's taking you all the way to the end and his reputation rides on it. He saved us. He is saving us. And he will save us in the final judgment. So we need not have concern or worry because we're in the he is saving us moment. We can trust him in that. We can find confidence in that. If you're in Christ, the world has no hold on you. And it need not terrify you. Even if everything in the world breaks apart and everything goes bananas and you can't make a single bit of sense of it, Jesus is with you in it. And he's with you forever. He purchased you with his blood. You are his. John 10, 28 says, I gave them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Nothing in this world. If you can rest in the cross of Christ and what he did for you, then how much more can you rest in Jesus' life as he's carrying you right now to the Father? How much more can you see his hand in your life every day? How much less do you need to worry when you realize such a thing? It's in Jesus' saving work now where we find our hope and our peace that we read about in Romans 5. It is in this truth, it is in this Jesus who is saving us, we can rest. Let us rejoice over that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your son to save me when I was a wretch, helpless, an idiot, spitting in your face, giving you the bird nailing you to the cross, mocking you as a scoffer walking by. And yet, Lord, you said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Thank you for forgiving all those who profess their faith and trust in you in this room or watching online. God, thank you that you didn't just stop the work there, but the work has continued from that moment and will continue until we are all together in eternity until you return Till we stand in the final judgment, your blood on us, marking us as yours and saving us. God, I worry. I am troubled. Lord, I know there are people in this room that worry and are troubled. What's going to happen with my job? What's going to happen with my finances? What's going to happen in the world? What about war? What about disease? What about problems? But Lord, you said we have no reason to fear. 
because you were with us. So God, help us. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. In every moment that we have anxiety, nervousness, fear, panic, in every moment that we look to the world and and don't know what to make of any of it, Lord, I ask that we would be reminded that you are carrying us, that even the wind and the waves obey your command, and that we can fully rest in the peace that is the hope that you give us as you are carrying us all the way to the finish line. Thank you for that, and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.